Well, I took a fair amount of grief last week as we began Romans and we only covered one word. <laughs> and after first service, I don't want you to get your hopes up. We may only cover two as we work our way through Romans chapter 1, I invite you to turn there with me, and let's read through verse 7. To Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, and separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the Holy Scripture, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God and called saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we just ask, Father, your anointing upon your word. God, that your word would be living and powerful. And Father, that we might receive that which you have for us in this, the introduction to the book of Romans. God, we pray you be glorified in this place in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we talked about the attitude of the, this man Paul. It's written there for us in that first phrase in, in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And we talk about how that phrase sounds kind of nice. You know, servant. We tend to take things in the Bible and we uh, holify them. We take them and we make them uh, sterile sometimes so that they, they lack meaning. The word is doulos, and it means slave. And it was written to a, a nation filled with slaves. Six million slaves in Rome. The Roman Empire. So when Paul said to them, I am a slave of choice in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking about something that maybe we don't all comprehend or grasp. We often talk when we talk about our relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll say things like, well, I've made a decision for Jesus. And that's great. But I think it's more than that. See, decisions we decide today, I'm a Christian, tomorrow I don't feel like a Christian, and then something happened and I didn't really want to be, I don't want to do, I don't want to... And so our our Christianity has this ebb and flow. But Paul, he took it to a whole other level. He talks about surrender, submission of his will. When you're a slave, all you do is what the master has for you to do. You see the picture he paints? It's not just about making a decision. Do we need to make a decision? Yeah, we need to make a decision to be his slave. Total surrender. But if I keep talking about that, We'll stay on one word again, and we're trying not to do that. So, that was the attitude we see in Paul. The attitude of the man bringing this, this promise of the gospel that he's delivering to the church of Rome. And when we look at the, the theme of, of Romans, we're looking at righteousness by faith. 
Righteousness by faith. What that means is our righteousness is a declared position. It's not earned. You don't earn your righteousness. You don't earn your righteousness by by praying enough prayers, reading the Bible enough, going to church enough times. It is a declared position that you have in Christ Jesus. Your position in Him declares your righteousness. Romans will go on to tell us, there is none righteous, no, not one. You will not earn your own righteousness. Your righteousness is something that is imputed to you because of your surrender to Jesus Christ. And that's the theme of Romans. The idea that you can be made new simply through the grace of God by faith. Man, it's incredible. Romans has done incredible things in men's lives. Martin Luther, the Great Reformation, Charles Wesley, I mean... Time would fail me to talk about all the guys whose lives were radically changed as they grasped the concept of being righteous, made right with God, based on your standing with Jesus Christ, your placement with Him. I love how, how He lays this out and He lays out for us that attitude, the attitude of the one who's delivering the gospel. But after the attitude of the one, He talks about the authority of the one. And we often see Paul talking about this, and, and this is one of those places, one of those phrases, one of those words that we find in Scripture that sometimes causes confusion because it's transliterated so often, and, and we get it mixed up with title. That next phrase in verse 1, look what he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called an apostle. Called an apostle. Oh, that word... Apostle, apostolos, it's it's the idea of being sent by someone to do something. In the Latin, the word is missio. It's the same word from which we get the root for missionary. Someone who is sent out. And so whenever we talk about this, and we see throughout Scripture Paul making this emphasis upon his apostleship, we want to understand why he's making that emphasis, and, and, and how do these groups of apostles, what do we see? What Scripture tell us? You know, you can open up a commentary and get 50 different opinions. To be honest with you, I have discovered it. I just care what the Word says. And I, I think the Word makes it a lot simpler than what we see in a lot of commentaries, and hopefully I'll be able to express that to you in enough time that we can actually get off of verse 1 and finish to verse 7. But as we do, I just want you to see it. The question oftentimes is, well, the the apostles had an important role, right? There are three separate groups in the page of Scripture called apostles. There are the twelve. There are the holy apostles, which God called to write the Word of God. And then there are just apostles. People like to argue, where, where does Paul fit in that group? I think the Word of God tells us exactly where he fits, and, and it makes it simple for us. And hopefully we can then understand, why is it that when Paul writes, and when people are doubting his authority, why is it such a big deal for Paul to say, hey, I'm an apostle, not by the will of men, but by God. God has called me. God has sent me with a mission. A very specific mission that the Scripture lays out for us that Paul had. So we want to get a grasp on this concept of apostles. Let's let the Bible tell us what it's about. So let's open up to Matthew. Just turn to the left to Matthew chapter 10. 
I always like to let the Bible speak for itself, let it tell us what's going on. So let's talk about these three groups of apostles. And we'll begin with the first one. Who are the twelve apostles? You know, the book of Revelation tells us that their names will be on the foundations of the New Jerusalem. And lots of argument happens about whether or not one of those twelve ought to be Paul. I mean, he did a lot. Is he one of the twelve? What's the Bible tell us? Matthew 10, verse 1 says, And when he had called the twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve, what's that next word? Apostles. You know, I just love it when the Bible don't make us guess. It tells us. The twelve disciples are the twelve apostles. But the Bible tells us one of those guys was the devil, right? His name was Judas Iscariot. In Acts chapter 1, Peter says, hey... The, the twelve, actually the 120, are gathered together in one accord in prayer, seeking the Lord. And the Lord leads Peter to say, hey, somebody needs to take Judas's place. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell upon, anybody remember his name? Matthias. Matthias. And he was chosen. But was he one of the twelve? I don't know. A lot of people want to argue about it, right? Well, they chose wrong. They were gambling. Except for the book of Proverbs tells us that the the lot is chosen by the Lord. And that was how they would choose in those days. Try to decipher the will of God. So it's not in, in rebellion against anything God's word says. They were in prayer. They were in one accord. The Lord led them. Well, let's just let the word tell us. Look at Acts chapter 1 verse 26. We'll just look at the book of Acts right there before Romans. Acts chapter 1, verse 26. It says, And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven, what's the word? So if you add one to the eleven apostles, what do you have? You have twelve apostles, right? Twelve? Well, I don't know, maybe that don't count. Turn the page. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. Verse 14, as Peter is standing on the day of Pentecost to deliver the first message ever, and the birthday of the church is about to take place, it says, Peter standing up with the eleven. So Peter and the other eleven makes how many? Twelve. Look, I don't think we've got to argue about who the twelve apostles are. The Bible tells us twice. How many times i got to tell you? Here are the twelve apostles. When they chose Matthias, it was a very specific category. It wasn't just that they had seen the Lord. It wasn't, it wasn't about that at all. It was about those who had been with them from the beginning. What is it that the twelve apostles, their role, their responsibility, they were the eyewitnesses. They were the eyewitnesses. Some of the twelve apostles were also part of a category the Scripture calls holy apostles. The holy apostles are those that were called out from among the apostles, among others, who were given a very specific mission. Remember, apostle means someone who has sent you out with a mission to do something. What was their mission? To write Scripture. That's the category we find Paul in. Well, let's look at it. In the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, let's flip over there. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, 
we have this group. Uh, the first part of this group uh, um, described in Ephesians 2 and 3. It says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, verse 19, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Quick Greek lesson. Two nouns strung together by the word and, when the first noun has a definite article before it, is connecting equals. Uh, why is that important? Well, you hear sometimes Jesus described as the Lord and Savior. Equals. The Lord, definite article, connected two nouns with the word and connecting equals. Well, why is that important to us? Well, we just flip over to the next chapter in verse three, or chapter three, verse four. It says, by which, when you read, you might understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. What is that mystery? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of His power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, His grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The second group called the Holy Apostles, were those who were given the task of writing Scripture. Paul, who arguably writes 13, some say 14, epistles of the New Testament. Now, if you're a Jewish person and you're sitting around and all of a sudden a guy shows up and says, Hey, man, I am writing Scripture. Why would you take his word for it? Or let's say someone shows up in the Jewish community, it says, I'm the Messiah. Why would you take His word for it? Well, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. The Bible says, the Jews seek a sign. What was the sign of Jesus the Messiah? You know, there are several signs that pop right out of Scripture that talk about things Messiah would do. Do you know that the psalmist would declare that only God Almighty, Yahweh Himself, can open the eyes of the blind? In John chapter 9, what do you see Jesus doing? Open the eyes of the blind. What does that make Jesus? In Psalm 23, it says, The Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, is my shepherd. In John chapter 10, what did Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. There were signs. There was this thing in, in, in Leviticus chapter 12, 13, and 14 roughly. They have these description on what to do when a leper gets cleansed. Do you know for their whole history, the history in Scripture, you don't see a leper get cleansed? You say, oh, come on, Jackie, I know of a couple. Yeah, they're Gentiles. Gentiles. But there was this moment in time when these ten lepers one day come up to Jesus... And all of a sudden, on one day, something that had almost never happened, all these guys show up at the, at the temple with the priest and say, Hey, this guy, we used to be lepers. This guy cleansed us. He told us to come make the offering. They had to look it up. You say, Oh, no, they didn't. Really? Really? Yeah. You don't think so? You think they had Leviticus memorized? You got it memorized? You might memorize that which you use, but not 
that which you don't. You know what those three chapters in Leviticus describe? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ in symbol. It's amazing. Amazing. How do they know Jesus was the Messiah? He fulfilled signs and wonders. Things happened when He was on earth that have never happened again. He calmed the sea. He spoke the words in the sea, walked on the water. He fed the 5,000, and just in case they thought that was a fluke, He did it twice. Okay, 5,000 and 4,000, but same concept, right? He fulfilled it because the Scripture wasn't a problem that the Jews sought after a sign. It was good. That way they could know this guy is from God. What do we see in the lives of the holy apostles? What do we see in the lives of the men who wrote Scripture? Who wrote it out for us so that we could know that what they wrote was Scripture. That we could take it and say, this is the Word of God. We saw signs and wonders. The signs of an apostle. Paul would write about it in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. What kind of signs? I'm not talking about the kind of signs guys put on TV today. I'm talking about Paul working and his shadow falling upon a person and the shadow touching him, healing him. I'm talking about that same kind of thing happening with Peter. I'm talking about Paul working and wiping off the sweat with a handkerchief and throwing it on the ground. Somebody picks it up and tosses it on a sick person and they get healed. I'm talking about the raising of the dead. I'm talking about incredible, wild miracles, establishing and authenticating that this guy who's writing to these churches is delivering God's Word. Authenticating what is being said. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, listen to what the writer of Hebrews has for us. I believe it's Paul, but we can argue about that later. Therefore, we must give the most earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at the first, in the beginning, began to be spoken by the Lord. So first, Jesus teaching us. And was confirmed, authenticated to us. By who? Those who heard Him. Who's that? The twelve. Those who walked with Him. Those who heard Him. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders and various miracles, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Interesting, the word gifts there is not the word charisma. It's a word that means to divide. It's as though He gave special power to His holy apostles that the Word of God could be confirmed. Look, I'm not trying to say God doesn't work miraculously and the Holy Spirit doesn't empower. You guys ought to know me better than that. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about these holy apostles to write the Word of God. Now, 2,000 years later, people come together and they say, you know, it's just a bunch of guys put this together. Are you listening to anything I'm saying? Listen, this book came about on the testimony of the twelve, written 
by the holy apostles whose work was authenticated by signs, wonders, and miracles was brought into the church and bound together. Now the thing everybody points to is they say somewhere around 300, I don't remember the exact date, there was a church council that got together to decide what was the Word of God. That's true. They got together and said, hey, what is the Word? Where are the writings of the holy apostles that we know were authenticated by signs and wonders? And that, my friends, is what you have on your lap in the back of the chair in front of you. Were there other writings? Yeah. Well, they were never authenticated. They didn't have any miracles. We don't even know if the people who wrote them really wrote them. It's like Joe the plumber wrote something and you guys want to run out and buy it like he's some authority. No, the holy apostles wrote Scripture. Amen. And we have it. We have that Scripture that we can hold to, that we can cling to, that can speak into our life authoritatively because it is God's Word. So when Paul says, I am an apostle, now you say, Jackie, come on, how can you make all these distinctions? Let me, let me tell you, the third group, remember the third group? Just apostles, guys who are sent out. You know how many guys are called apostles in the Scripture? You really think there's only 12 or 13 of them? Well, you need to, you need to open a Word and read. It's real simple. You can go online and just do a search at Google. And come up with all the different places in the Bible where the word apostle is used. Let me give you some of their names. Andronicus. You know Andronicus? Yeah, he's called an apostle. Junia. He's called an apostle. How about James, the Lord's brother? He's called an apostle. Barnabas. Silvanus. So you might know his name as Silas. A lot of people are called apostles. They had a mission called by God to go do something. The struggle is, the word apostle, we just read it into English. And instead of saying they were sent on a mission to do something, we call them apostles. So we get confused. The mission with the office. Are you guys with me? So you have the twelve who were the eyewitnesses. And you have the holy apostles who were then to write down the eyewitness accounts. And they became scripture. Some of them are the same. For example, John wrote the gospel of John. John the beloved. John the apostle. John, first, second, third John. And Revelation. You have Jude. You have James. You have Peter, who was also one of the twelve, and Holy Apostle, who wrote Scripture that was authenticated by signs and wonders. These are the groups that the Bible breaks out for us. So when we come to it and we say, look, Paul is saying, here's my attitude. I'm wholly committed, absolutely, totally in. I'm a doulos. I'm a slave of God. And this is the authority. I'm called by God to write Scripture. That's why he would tell people, I'm an apostle. This is the authority by which I come. This is God's mission. Here is how that mission is authenticated by the different things that occurred in his life. And then he talks about his appointment. Look at that third part of verse 1. Look how fast we're going. We're almost all the way through verse 1. The third part is his appointment. What is his appointment? It says, separated unto the gospel. That word separate is not the normal word for separate. It's a word that means horizon. That the gospel is his horizon. It's that thing that guides him, that leads him, that he looks at. Keep your eye on the horizon. It was that which he focused on. It was his everything. You have his attitude of a slave. You have his authority as an apostle to write scripture. And you have his appointment. That the gospel is everything to him. It's everything in him. It's everything about him. He was called, separated 
unto the gospel of God. And then he goes on to tell us that message. Look at verse 2. Which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scripture. Man, the the message that it contains is twofold. Here we see the first part in in verse 2. This is the promise. Look, the promise is all throughout Scripture. I don't even have to try to think very hard. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54, Isaiah 61. There are multiple places that we can go where we can see the gospel in the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. There's places where we can go to see the gospel in the Old Testament. And so listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. He said to them, These are the words that I have spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things would be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. That's what Jesus said. Look, first he's saying, this is the message. Here's the messenger. He has the attitude of a slave, the authority of an apostle writing scripture, and this appointment that he is separated, totally focused on the gospel, the good news. Evangelion. Evangelion. Anybody could be an evangelion. In in Greek, evangelion just meant you had good news. A king could send evangelion out. Here, Jesus Christ is sending him out. And what's the message? The fulfillment, one part, of the promise of Old Testament Scripture. If someone was to say to you, I don't see the Gospel in the Old Testament, they actually need to start reading it, because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Everywhere you turn your eyes, you can find the Gospel in the Old Testament. The Word of God declares it. But it's not just the promise. This message is not just the promise of the Old Testament. It's also a person. Let's look at it. Verse 3. Concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Now we had the promise, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament Scriptures looking into the Gospel, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. But now we see the person. And that person is divided into two parts. The first part, the Scripture lays out for us in verse 3 concerning the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David. You see that word born? It's the word genomai in the Greek. Born. It's the same word as you see in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Later on, around verse 14, I think it says, And the Word became flesh. You guys remember the verse? Became. It's the same word. Born. Became. It literally means made. And what it demands is a pre-existent state. It doesn't speak of coming into being at that moment. It demands a pre-existent state which was changed at a moment in time. Made flesh. He was born. God in flesh. The scripture lays it out for us. Listen, he says concerning his son, Jesus Christ, who was born, who was made according to the flesh. We'll see in a moment. So first we see his pre-existent state. He existed before, eternally existed as God Almighty put on flesh. Then we see his position, the seed of David. That is a declaration of the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the King. The seed of David. He was of the seed, singular. Not the seeds, 
the seed. The seed of David is a promise of Messiah, that Messiah would come through the family of David. His mama, who carried the egg and the child within her womb, was of the line of David. And her adopt, his adopted father, Joseph, was also of the kingly line of David. The father through Solomon, but because he wasn't born of Joseph, he didn't carry the blood curse of Jeconiah, but he carried the legal right to the kingship in Joseph. And the seed carried through Mary also tied to the seed of David. He comes through David no matter what you do. He is the seed of David, the Messiah. So we have a pre-existent state. He was made the seed of David, declaring that he is Messiah. And finally, we have his humanity according to the flesh. This scripture lays out for us that he was holy and completely flesh. He was fully God and fully man. Theologically, we call it the hypostatic union, which is just a phrase that you're not going to understand if I try to explain it to you anyway. We can get together and talk about it later. But the idea is what Scripture tells us. He is fully God, pre-existent, the Messiah, and made in flesh. He was brought in the flesh. And then not only do we see his relationship to King David and his humanity, but then we see his divinity. Scripture goes on, and declared to be the Son of God. That word declared, same word for the horizon. Same word for the horizon. To mark out definitely the thing that we focus on. To mark out definitely what? What are we, what are we marking out definitely? That He is the Son of God. That phrase, Son of God, means He has the character and nature of Almighty God. He cannot stop being God. He, he cannot stop being man. He is The God-man. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Declared. What declared Him to be the Son of God? The resurrection. The resurrection makes Him the Son of God. Why? He said, He said, Look, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up again. The people said, Well, forty-some years, we worked building this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But the Scripture declares to us in John chapter 2, He said, I was speaking, He was speaking of His flesh his body and after he was resurrected his disciples all realized it the resurrection of the dead declares that jesus christ is who he said he was he said he was god in the flesh he declared himself through seven i am statements to be the great i am he said in john uh i want to say john chapter seven unless you believe that i am eternal god you'll die in your sin that's kind of an important thing, right? You say, oh, I don't remember that verse. Oh, that's because in your Bible it reads like this. Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sin. But I am is the ego I me. It's the declaration of the proper name of God. The becoming one. Yahweh. He's declaring who he is. How did he declare to be the son of God in power? Through the resurrection of the dead. So how? What do we see that, that declares that to us? Well, one, he rose by his own power. John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus said, no man takes my life, I give it. And if I have the power to give it, I also have the power, what? To take it up again. Do you know that the Bible declares not only that Jesus raised himself, but the Holy Spirit raised him and the Father? Oh, that's one of those other things that the Bible talks about that people don't 
seem to want to understand. Do you know that the Bible says that Jesus is the Creator? Do you know that the Bible says the Father is the Creator? Do you know what the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is Creator? What does that mean? Well, it means what it says. They're all Creator. They are what the Scripture calls a triune God. Do you know that the only word used to describe God as one is the word Echad? The same word defined in the book of Genesis to describe the oneness of a husband and wife? Kind of interesting, isn't it? Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is Echad, one. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Echad. The Lord could have choose, chosen a word, Yahid, which means one and only, but he didn't. He chose Echad. Interesting. All these names that say God in your Bible just says God. Elohim is a plural. It's a plural. El is singular. Elah is dual. Elohim is more than two. Isn't that interesting? Look, I don't know how to explain it. And if I could fit it all in a box, it probably wouldn't make any sense that that, that would be how God is. I just know what the Word says. This is what the Word says. Your argument is not with me. It's with it. Well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. You're right. There are lots of things. The word, not in the, the word steak's not in the Bible. It doesn't mean steak doesn't exist. Uh, you call it what you want. The Bible teaches us the three distinct persons, all called God, all Creator. All raised Christ from the dead. That's the power that we see. The power that Jesus raised Himself. What else? It authenticated everything He said. Everything He said was hinged on this one thing. Give us a sign. Okay, here's the sign. I will rise on the third day. Now, why would the third day be important? Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, David is declaring in the Psalms that you will not leave my body in Sheol. Sheol is the grave. So David says, you're not going to leave my body in Sheol. That means there's life after death. And you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, he's not talking about himself. The title, the Holy One, is a Messianic title. That means the Messiah. You will not allow the Messiah to see corruption. In Psalm 16. You will allow your, your Holy One to see corruption. The Jewish mindset was corruption began on the fourth day. How do we know that? Well, in the Gospel of John, Jesus had this friend, Lazarus. You guys remember Lazarus? And Lazarus died. And he was buried and in the ground how many days? Anybody remember? Four days. And he went and he showed up on the fourth day and they said, Lord, don't open the tomb. He is corrupt. But your Bible in the King James may say stinketh. You get the idea though, right? Well, the psalmist said the Holy One, the Messiah is going to die, but he's not going to be corrupt. So that means he will be raised before fourth day. Jesus said on the third day. He defined it exactly. Last I checked, a guy cannot decide when he's going to be resurrected. You try it. (laughs) Impress me. But Jesus did it. You don't think that kind of sets him out beyond the crowd? Declared to be the Son of God in power. By the resurrection of the dead. It authenticated everything he said. Because he rose when he said he was going to rise. 
and show the power of His ability to raise Him. It also results in our salvation. Look, you're already in Romans. Just turn a couple pages. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. I don't have time to read it all, so we'll just start at verse 9. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, what's it say? You will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes on Him. Isn't that what it says? Whoever, interesting. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all, you see that word all? Quick Greek lesson, you guys remember, right? All means all, and that's all that all means. So all means? Does it ever mean most? No. It always means all. So the same Lord over all is rich to, what's the next word? All who do what? Call upon Him. So that means everyone who calls upon Him, confesses with His mouth, believes in His heart, can be saved. Is that what that's saying? Is that Well, just in case you think no, the next verse should clear it up for you. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our salvation hinges on the resurrection of Christ. The promise of the message of the gospel throughout the Old Testament and the person of the gospel, the humanity and divinity of Christ, evident in His birth, death, and resurrection. That's the gospel in a nutshell laid out for us. But then he goes on in verse 5 to tell us the mission. What's the mission? We see the person. We see the, 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 the message. What's the mission? Through Him, we have received grace and... What? Did that just... Apostleship? We? Okay, you can make the argument that, that Paul's talking about himself and the mouse that he has in his pocket. And I can make the argument that when he says we, he means... Us. That we are saved how? By grace. Through faith. That's our salvation. And then we have an apostleship. What's an apostleship? It means we have a mission. What's your mission? Matthew 28, 19 says to go into all the world making disciples of all men. Baptizing them in the name. Singular by the way. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Teaching them the things that Jesus commanded. And lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. you got a mission. That means you're an apostle. <gasps> Revelation tells you that too, by the way. Apostle, not the title. The mission. Go and tell. I'm not very good at theology. You don't got to be good at theology. I can't answer everybody's question. Look, don't try to answer everybody's question. Let's make it simple. You tell them what God's done in your life. That's all you got to do. God will do it. You just trust in Him. You tell Him. You speak the Word. You have an apostleship. For what? For obedience to the faith. To be obedient to the faith. That I have put my trust. I have submitted my life. I have given myself as slave. Among all the nations, for what purpose? For His name. 
for his name, seeing as it is wonderful. Verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Christ Jesus. Wow, you're called. Isn't that cool? Ephesians says you're the elect. How did you become the elect? Well, to as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, to as many as believed on his name. Huh. You're the called. Not only are you called of Christ, look what else it says. You're called of Christ to all who are in Rome. What's the next phrase? Beloved of God. You know that title, Beloved of God, was only ever given to a couple of guys on the page of Scripture? In the Old Testament, it was given to a fellow named Daniel. Daniel. It's a scary thing sometimes to be beloved of God because Daniel was called beloved of God. He was also made a eunuch as a teenager. And he suffered in exile from his nation his entire life and never went home. But he's called beloved of God. John, the Apostle John, much beloved of God. Both of those guys were given pretty incredible revelation, right? One wrote the book of Daniel, the other the book... A revelation, pretty incredible things that God showed those two guys. Do you know that God's word says you're beloved? Ephesians tells us that you are in the beloved. Your position in Christ makes you beloved of God. Beloved of God. That's a pretty incredible place. You're beloved of God. You're called of Jesus Christ. But look, there's one more thing. And called saints. Called saints. You don't got to do any miracles to be a saint. The Word of God doesn't tell you that. The Word says you are called saints, set apart ones. Ones that God wants to use for that very specific mission that He has for you. That mission that He wants to see you fulfill. You are called saints, set apart. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, this greeting, some 167 words without a pause. Paul didn't even take a breath. He just gets going. That's what Paul does. But he says so much in it. He talks about his attitude. He talks about his authority. He talks about his appointment. He talks about the the message, the gospel, being about the promises of the Old Testament and the person of Jesus Christ, both in his humanity and his divinity. And then he talks about our response. That we too are called. That we, saved by grace, that we have an apostleship. And you see, that's what he's going to begin to delineate from this point forward as we work our way through the book of Romans. He's going to show you that you're made right with God simply based on the faith that you place in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And at that moment, everything changes. Amen? And then, who knows? Maybe one day... Somebody will tell a story about us like they told about Natasha. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time that we can come study your word, open the word. God, I pray that your word just finds a fruitful place in our life by which and through which it may take seed, it take hold and begin to change us from the inside out. God, I pray, Lord, that we would just... Just begin to grasp the beauty, the majesty, that we begin to comprehend the reason Paul is called an apostle, that he would write scripture for us and we could know it's from God because it's sealed and signed by the miracles and signs that the scripture declared it would be. 
That we could see the attitude of Paul that ought to be our attitude, that I am a slave wholly and completely given and surrendered to my master. That we would understand the message of the gospel, the promise of the Old Testament fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, both his humanity and divinity. Man, Lord, there's just so much here for us to grasp, and I pray that your spirit would enable us to do so because it is because of these words written on the pages of Holy Scripture, that we are made new. New creation created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has appointed for us. I thank you that I am not yet what I will be, but I am not what I was. I am in Christ, a new creation. God, I pray. I pray that my life could be as impactful on those around me as Natasha was for those who saw her. And that we would fulfill the calling by which you have called us, the mission that you have given us in obedience to the faith to go to all the nations and declare who Jesus Christ is and what He has given and what He will do in and through us. Lord God, we give You all the praise and the glory for what You have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.